Hey, everybody, it's the Drive to School podcast. I am Pastor Goodman, your host, and my, my good buddy, David Zills, the apologist, is back. How you doing? Hanging in there. Doing all right. I'll take hanging in there. That's that's a, yeah. <laughs> let's let's hang in there then uh, when we kind of tackle this. We've been um, working our way through, should you trust the Old Testament? And, and we kind of came to the idea that, well, if Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus trusts the Old Testament, then yeah um but like then you start to deal with the new testament which was written after christ ascended so you can't see him necessarily in his, in his flesh pointing to it and quoting it and so he can't say in the future I'm, I'm going to write this book and i'm quoting the book that i haven't written yet so how do we how do we um how do we confront sort of the the validity of the new testament can i trust it yeah so kind of following the argument we've done so far you know, we say we turn confirmation on its head and confirmation, the catechism approach is, you know, the Bible is true. If the Bible says Jesus is the son of God and rose from the dead, then that must be true. But in our culture, you kind of have to flip the argument and say, let's just look at historical arguments, not assuming scripture is even fully true in a historical sense, let alone inspired. And let's just see who Jesus is. And if Jesus is special and unique in a way that no other religious or philosophical teacher is, and in particular, if he's God in the sense of the Jewish God, Yahweh, and if he rose from the dead, then we should listen to what he has to say. Mm -hmm. And so then Jesus speaks the words of God. And then if Jesus um, authorizes the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures that were in existence at his time as um, true down to the letter where he can make arguments based on individual words and individual tenses of words, then we can take the Old Testament as inspired. And since it was, since it represents the words of God and God does not lie, then ins inspiration implies infallibility and inerrancy. But if you follow that argument, you say, well, that's all we have. We can't have a New Testament because, like you said, the New Testament didn't exist until after Jesus was back in heaven. And so does that mean that we we have to be suspicious about the New Testament? And this really bothered me for a while because, um, you know, a lot of when we do a lot of our systematic theology and hermeneutics, we rely a lot on Paul's letters and it really bothered me that we derive so much of our theology, like really important stuff like salvation by grace through faith. And we always point to proof texts in Paul's letter. And I said, well, Paul was never condoned by Jesus. He wasn't even one of the disciples. So like, is my whole faith meaningless now? Even if Jesus rose from the dead, can I still have confidence in the core Christian beliefs? And so we have to go there. And um and I think uh, one way we can start to make the case that there should be additional revelation on top of the Old Testament is just from the fact of the, the two covenants, the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In fact, that's what Old Testament and New Testament really mean. It's the Old Covenant under Moses and the New Covenant established by Jesus. So if you look at the history of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, there's this sense that it's incomplete and there's an ending that needs to be written and that kind of begs for the New Testament to be written. And so the Old Testament, if you think about it, wasn't the first way that God revealed himself to people. Like the Old Testament wasn't written um, until Moses. And there's this whole history before Moses 
where God had been relating to the patriarchs and even way before then, but we get more details at the patriarchs with him forming the nation of Israel. And then they go into Egypt and there are the plagues and the Exodus, Passover, the parting of the Red Sea. And after God has done all this and kind of revealed himself through events in history, and then he takes his people to Mount Sinai and says, okay, I'm forming a covenant with you. This is going to last far into the future. It's going to define your identity and your way of life. And you're always going to need to look back to this. So write it down. And that's when we see Moses writing down the Old Testament. Uh, well, the beginning of the Old Testament. And then the rest of the Old Testament um, is always looking back to that. One of the key themes in the Old Testament is to remember. Remember what God has done. I think there's a huge spiritual discipline and remembering God's faithfulness because um, so often a lot of spiritual problems come down to forgetfulness. And so there's always this cry, remember who God is, what he's done and who you are in him. Um, so much of spiritual disciplines really just come down to that. And so when you read a lot of the prophets, they're always calling Israel back to the Mosaic covenant. They're saying, you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten the, the true God. And so they're always pointing back to the Old Covenant. But at some point, they start spending more time pointing forward, especially in the time of the in, of the exile. They say, okay, you broke the Old Covenant. You went into exile. The curses of Deuteronomy fell on you. We're starting clean. There's going to be a new thing happening. Messiah is coming. And they start pointing to a new covenant in the future. And then it just kind of ends. And you're like, well, that's a that's kind of a terrible ending for scripture. So when Jesus comes, he says, I am the Messiah. And in the when he's celebrating Passover, which was the key memorial meal for the old covenant, he says, This is my blood of the new covenant. And so it makes sense that if Jesus is doing new things like God did in the Exodus, if God is doing an even greater deliverance, not just of Israel from slavery to the Egyptians, but of all people for slavery to sins, then it makes sense that there would be books that would be written about it. Um, and I think when we were corresponding about this, you brought to my attention a verse from John that kind of brings this sense of, of testifying and how the scriptures are testifying to a person and what the person has done. Right. This is this is John uh, five thirty nine, where Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. He says, "You you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life, and I tell you the truth; these things testify of of me." Um, Jesus lays claim then to to be the central character in the entirety of the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way until the prophets go silent at the end of Malachi. Um, and, and if this is the case. Um, well, if all of the Old Testament was written to point to Jesus, and now Jesus is incarnate to fulfill everything that they've promised, like why wouldn't why wouldn't we want to also write this down? Um, it, it makes sense that in the same way that the Holy Spirit, who, whose job it is to to bring Jesus to you, um, whose chief work is is to to deliver Jesus to you in time and space, would also then codify this by by uh, you know um, a, a, a word that endures. Uh, we we call this we call this scripture. It's, it's the things that point to Jesus. Yeah, and so I think that kind of gives this intuitive argument that we should expect new scriptures when Jesus comes and establishes a new covenant. But then the question is like, well, do we have some kind of promise like Jesus made a, an endorsement of the Old Testament? Do we have something like that for the New Testament? Obviously, he can't endorse specific books. But I think he did endorse specific spokespeople. In particular, you think of the apostles. So 
um, the, the commissioning of the apostles was very important. He gathered them early and he said, you're going to testify about me. And later in John, he says, you're going to testify about me and the Holy Spirit is going to testify with you. And so the calling of the apostles to bear witness about Jesus is there's a promise that the Holy Spirit is going to guide and protect that to keep it in the truth. Um, and so uh, there's a quote from one of the books that um, I found really helpful on this topic where, where it says by, um, it says, in short, there was a group of men from which Judas fell into which Matthias was added by vote and Paul by divine appointment, meaning the apostles. This group was chosen by Christ and ordained by him to be with him. Mark 3.14, he sent them forth to preach in the days of his flesh. He promised that they would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, Luke 22. Their names are engraved on the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, and upon them is built the Christian church, Ephesians 2.20, where it says, you know, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so there's the sense where Jesus set apart the apostles to bear witness, and he didn't just set them apart, but he promised that the Holy Spirit would confirm their word and, and make sure that it remained in the truth. And so um, in John... During the Passover meal where Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, he's talking to his disciples in what they call the upper room discourse. And he makes a number of promises in John 14, 15, and 16 of the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. And these can be understood as promises to all Christians. But if you look in context, primarily they're promises to the, the apostles that the Holy Spirit is going to direct their testifying about Jesus to keep it in the truth. Um, so some key passages, John 14, 26, all this, Jesus is saying, all this I have spoken while still with you. He's with the apostles, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So reminding of what Jesus had said to them obviously applies to the apostles, because if they don't remember it, then we can't remember it because they're the ones who were there and we weren't. Um, in John 15, 26 to 27, when the advocate comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify, it's the key word, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, there's that word again, for you have been with me from the beginning. So there's the sense in which the apostles are testifying about Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is right there doing it too. Um, and then John 16, I have much more to say to you, more than you now can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And later it says he will tell you what is yet to come, which is obviously a revelation type kind of thing. Um, and so these promises combined with the calling of the apostles, that's the the 12 or the 11 however you want to break it down apart for a ministry of testifying to jesus which is what the scriptures do and there's a promise that the holy spirit will be there um keeping their words true and reminding them of what jesus would say teaching them additional things and making sure that the scriptures were were true 
Right. And, and this is something then that, that is conferred in pra- or confirmed, excuse me, in practice almost immediately. So uh, one of the cool parts about Christianity is that we can sort of walk up the chain of church history from, from today all the way to the, the teaching of the apostles. Like we, we have their students um, in, in Polycarp, in um, Arrhenius, um, that, that have studied under the feet of, of John. And so how the church who knew the apostles starts to treat their, uh, their first works it really sort of it also really shows that there's something going on here that that is is worth listening to yeah so the apostles claimed a certain authority because of their commission by jesus Hmm. Um, and in particular paul was never commissioned by jesus during this upper room discourse because he's not following jesus at the time and he makes some very explicit claims about his authority so Um, In Galatians 1 to 2, a very important passage for understanding Paul's calling, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So he is claiming some kind of supernatural revelation. And then later in that passage, he says, I wanted to check that my message agreed with the other apostles, and I did. And they were like, yeah, this is the same thing we're teaching. And mm-hmm. so there's, it's revealed by Jesus, but it's consistent with what Jesus was already communicating through the other apostles. And then he makes some other, Paul makes some other explicit claims. It's like Paul always had to defend his his yeah. identity as an apostle, his role as an apostle, because he wasn't original and he was a persecutor of Jesus originally. So he's, he, he does this a lot in his letters. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, if anyone thinks they are a prophet— otherwise gifted by the spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command, not Paul's command, the Lord's Mm -hmm. command, not the Lord's suggestion, command, very strong words. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, and we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So Paul is also claiming the same kind of Um, inspiration that Jesus promised to the original 12. And like you said, when we get to the later, um, the the students of the apostles, especially Clement and Polycarp, and to some extent Ignatius, who were in the generation after the apostles, and we know that at least Clement and Polycarp were familiar with the apostles, um, they say things that they're always saying, be grounded in the teachings of the apostles. Always go back to the apostles. They always pointed back and they always distinguished themselves from the apostles. They said, you know, I, I'm a bishop, a pastor, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, but I don't have the authority that the apostles did. So some particular quotes, um, Paul, uh, Clement of Rome um, who is writing in the nineties, very shortly after the apostles have died He says, take up the epistle of the blessed Paul, the apostle. He's writing to the Corinthians. So he's talking about the epistles, first and second Corinthians. And and Clement writes, what did he first write to you in the beginning of the gospel? Truly, he wrote to you in the spirit. So there's the sense that these writings are guided by the spirit. Um, A couple other um, relevant quotes um, from Polycarp. You know, there's the sense that the apostles are teaching what they heard from Jesus. Paul is teaching what he heard from Jesus, not when Jesus is on earth, but after he's ascended. 
are these two different groups teaching different things? And when you look at what these people, the followers of the apostles said, they always put Paul and the apostles in the same category. They were united and public in their message. And so Polycarp is talking about persecution and martyrdom. And he says, um, to pay attention to the endurance of others in your congregation, writing to the congregation of the Philippians, where we, Paul wrote them a letter. And then Paul, and then Polycarp, Polycarp makes a statement about Paul himself and the rest of the apostles. And so the, these are a group, they're testifying the same thing to Jesus. Paul checked his message with the apostles and mm -hmm. his message was received as the same message which the other apostles were, were teaching. And it's taken as authoritative early on, like the apostles teaching was teaching from Jesus. Right. And it's it's one of those things even that that's echoed in the book of Acts, simply in that you have uh, Luke, who, who pens Acts, acknowledging the works of Paul and acknowledging that there actually had to be a council where Peter and, and Paul sort of hashed something out. And this was done as peers um, that that is rooted in then what is God's truth to this particular issue, which was, you know, that the eating of food that was sacrificed to idols, um, which is is um, if, if you are a uh, completely apostate, if, if you are just sort of a gone rogue preaching your own thing, you're usually not invited to the big council and you're usually not heard as an equal and you're usually not the one who walks away victorious. Um, and it's usually not recognized by one of the original uh, 12 in, in uh, the, the gospel of Luke, which was again, sort of penned under um, the, the supervision and, and priority of the 12. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of acts, there's another piece in all this that is evidence that if the apostles were claiming unique authority given by Jesus, did God have some way of confirming that, yeah, these claims are legit or they're saying this on their own? And this is where we've talked about miracles and mm -hmm. miracles are still done today, but there's something special about when miracles are done by the apostles because they're making claims that Christians don't make today. They're making claims to be have special authority given by Jesus. And so when the apostles do miracles and they're clearly from God, that's like God setting his stamp of approval saying, yeah, these people are claiming to speak for me and they are, you better listen to them. Nice. And so in Acts 2, um, it says, they, the earliest Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Again, there's that authority. And then everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs, miracles performed by the apostles. Um, and then there are a number of passages in Acts where Paul does miracles that confirm his authority as an apostle. And Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 12, I, Paul, per persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. And so you put all this together, Jesus' calling of the apostles, his promise of the Holy Spirit, their claims, the miracles they did that were, were God's approval of their claims and the way their teachings were received, um, you get this sense that the apostles are the foundation of really writing the New Testament. And so what we've done so far is we've made the case that there should be a New Testament and that is rooted in the apostles. What we haven't answered is, well, how do we know what books belong in the New Testament? And that's another question. But the way the church answered that question, the second question of which books belong in the New Testament is they always pointed back to did it come from apostolic witness. And so that's why the first question is the most important because it says, what's the guiding principle of what belongs in the New Testament and why there even is a New Testament? And then the second question, which is also important because you have to know which books you trust mm -hmm. um, as divinely inspired is which books um, had 
the authority of an apostle behind them and therefore belong in the New Testament scriptures? Right. That's a really important question because um, that there should be a New Testament. You're right. It, it seems pretty evident at this point. But like there's also lots of books out there that sort of purport to be um, teachings from the apostles uh, and are not included in in sort of our our Bibles. There there are um, you hear about them around every Holy Week on History Channel and every other thing. Um, but there, there's, you know, the, the Gospels of, of Thomas. There's there's the, the Gospel of Judas. Uh, there's the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Um, and, and every last one of them is sort of uh, Barnabas has one. They're, they're, they're worth sort of contending with, should this be in there or not? And how do you know we have the right ones? And how do we know we shouldn't have more? And how do we know we don't have too many? Like, these are, these are good questions. Yeah. So I think, again, the guiding principle behind all this is the apostolic authority to speak and testify about Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, sometimes it's said the, the canon, which is, you know, a theological word for the rule of what belongs, you know, the standard for what belongs in the scriptures, the New Testament canon, it sometimes is claimed was not formed until like Constantine and some church council. And there's some truth to that in that there were still debates among the broader Christian church up until that time about the extent of the canon. But what isn't true is that Nobody had any clue about a New Testament canon until 300 AD. You see very early on a core set of books being recognized as, yeah, these are obviously have apostolic authority and the Holy Spirit bearing witness about Jesus. So in particular, the Gospels, the fourfold gospel and the letters of Paul are seem to be two collections of writings that are early on recognized as scripture. In fact, um, Paul, even within the New Testament, um, Paul in his letter to, um, let's see, in 1 Corinthians 9, he's at talking about, um, I think he's talking about, should you pay your pastor for his work? And he quotes um, Deuteronomy 25, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Later on in Paul's ministry, he writes 1 Timothy and in verse 518, he comes back to this theme and he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's a quote from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 5, 25, 4. But then Paul goes on and within the context of the scripture says, he says, and quote, the laborer deserves his wages. Now this quote, he's calling scripture, but it's nowhere in the Old Testament, but it is in the gospel of Luke in Luke 10, 7. And so here you have a case where Paul is quoting Jesus as a written down word, scripture, graphe is the Greek. And it says, um, it is written in the sacred scripture, something that's from the gospel of Luke. So you see the gospel of Luke was actually received as scripture almost immediately mm -hmm. within Paul's lifetime. Um, Similarly, Polycarp, who was said to have known multiple apostles, and especially the apostle John, when he was in Ephesus, in one of in his letter, the one that we have still today, he says, only as said in these scriptures, there's that word again, be angry and do not sin, which is quoting from Psalm 4. Paul also quotes Psalm 4, 5 in his letter to the Ephesians. But then Polycarp goes on, he says, and quote, again, in the context of the scriptures says, do not let the sun set on your anger. Now, the second quote, which is 
equated as scriptures on par with the Old Testament is not in the Old Testament. It is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4.26. And so here we have within a generation, somebody who knew the apostles quoting Paul's letters as scripture. And so these, the gospels and Paul's letters are received almost immediately as authoritative. And the debates that lasted for a couple of centuries were about books like Hebrews or second and third John, things that were where the authorship was maybe in contention or things like this. But the principles that the church used to solve these debates that lasted was they always pointed back to the apostles. They said, do these derive from apostolic authority? That's the first category. Do they agree with what has been believed in all times and all places? What we know to be true from the rest of scripture we already have, that's called orthodoxy. And then does it um, conform to the rule of faith, which is this idea that at the time there were churches founded by apostles only a few generations ago, and they could look at what those churches were teaching and trace those teachings back to the apostles. And if throughout the world there are multiple apostolic churches teaching stuff, and then some new book comes out and says, well, actually, that's all garbage. This is you should believe this other thing. Then they're like, well, this probably doesn't go back to the apostles because it doesn't conform to the apostles original public unanimous testimony. And so the three categories that are kind of scholars use to sum up the logic the church used in resolving these debates about the canon are apostolicity. Does it go back to apostolic authority? Orthodoxy, does it conform to what we already know to be true? And Catholicity, not the Roman Catholic Church, but the okay, universal see, yeah. church at the time. Does it go back to what we know the apostles have taught publicly in all these places and that we know to be true because it, um, it's universal and it goes back to the testimony of the apostles? Right. And then we have to recognize that, that the church was a living and active thing, even at this time, that um, we can sort of say that uh, along with uh, the, the closing of John, that, that there are things that we don't know about that that did happen. Jesus did many other signs that, in the witness of the apostles, but these things that you have are written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. We, we know that we have enough that, that uh, by believing in it, we can have eternal life, but they're also if there's there's another letter or two of Paul out there, we can actually address those things based on those three categories. Um, it's not you're right that that God ever sort of handed down uh, on high on golden tablets or any other thing that that you should you should believe only these books and these books shall you believe. But but rather we can look at how the church has spoken, acted, and 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 received since the time of of the apostles and going forward from every single generation, so that we can confront the new things that that do pop up. Um, because every once in a while, we, we we find a book that is supposedly of Judas or supposedly of, and we can not only test sort of historically, can we can we verify the um, veracity that this is as old as it claims to be, et cetera, et cetera. But we can also look at the teachings. We, we can sort of say, is this along with the same words of, of scripture or is this a, a different word? Yep. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of ground, kind of covered the argument for the New Testament canon, uh, New Testament scriptures in very broad strokes. There are some books um, I don't have. Oh, I do. Okay. If someone wants to dig into this deeper, Inerrancy by Norm Geisler. This came out in 1980 as a companion to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which was a response to schisms in multiple synods, including you know, what Lutherans call Seminax in the 70s. My grandpa was a part of that. Um, there's even a chapter in here written by one of the seminary presidents um, at the time. The Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce. F.F. F. Bruce is a um, 
a really respected biblical scholar from a previous generation. He um, writes about both the Old and New Testament, and he talks more about the history of how these things were accepted. And it has really good content on like the Old Testament Apocrypha, which we haven't addressed at all. Um, the question of the the question of canon by Michael Kruger talks about uh, it's a writing to New Testament scholars who are skeptical of the New Testament canon, kind of making the case that hey, this is legit. And then one that I find particularly helpful: the inspiration and canonicity of scriptures mm-hmm. uh, by Harris, and um, that breaks down um, kind of the arguments we've talked about in detail. Um, so we've obviously just done a thousand foot view. Th- um, the 30,000 foot view, whatever you want to call it. But um, there's a lot more to to discover here and um, probably a lot of questions that remain. So hopefully those are some resources for people to dig in deeper if they uh, have more questions. Absolutely. David, thank you so much for sort of taking the, the high view with us on this. I uh, hope you have a great day. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Harrison. Take care.